Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, hi. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's first Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett. I'm the host of this show. You you probably know that by now. If not, maybe you're a, a new listener, in which case, welcome aboard. The, the guest today is Neil Kumar. He is the co-founder and CEO of Bridge Bio, a company that was founded in 2015. They had a, a, a sizable IPO in 2019. They raised almost $350 million. And they are set up as a, um, I'm not going to say new, but a sort of tweaked business plan which has changed the investment proposition for investors. They've de-risked some of the issues around drug development. And uh, one of the co-founders is Andrew Lowe, who's an economist. And I found it fascinating to think about the way they are trying to run this company and the way they're trying to run this business. And that's kind of why when I was thinking about, you know, well, would Neil be a good fit for this show? I thought, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things about Bridge Bio that are interesting to think about, not only about the company itself, but about greater trends in startup formation. And the, the way you have a good interview is sometimes someone comes in and they are unguarded and open to talking about anything. And through the conversation, you get down to some sort of truth about who they are as a person, which then informs the way they see the world, which informs the way they run their companies. It informs the way they tackle complex biological questions. And a, a little bit of that did happen here with Neil. But also sometimes what makes a good interview is uh, a robust exchange of thoughts and, and ideas and I think that's what happened in the in the later half of this interview. You know, I just got to sit with Neil and ask him, why is Bridge Bio built this way? It looks like it's built this way for these reasons. Am I wrong about that? What does this say about the future of venture capital funding? What does it say about the risks inherent in biotech? Really good conversation. I, I came away, you know, thinking about things in a different way. Um, I learned some stuff, and, and that's how you know. You had a good talk. Anyway, that's how I know I had a good talk. I hope it's also <laughs> interesting for you. Um, and also, just on top of it, what a nice guy. Really enjoyed talking to him. I think that's probably all you need to know. So here it is, your first Rounders podcast with Neil Kumar. Listen up. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I'm like, literally, I got in early today just so I could take the round with somebody to reinstall the audio driver on my computer because it's just all goofed up. So that's sorry. That's all. That's all. So you you're saying that you get up, you get up at four thirty for your kids? Yeah, I usually get up. I usually well, no, I usually get up at four thirty. So like my kids, when they get up at seven or so, I can have breakfast with them. I got it. Okay, you get everything out of the way early, and then you've got that time with them. Yeah. yeah. Although today I'm in the office, I'm in my office, but uh, because I got a bunch of uh, bunch of stuff after this, but uh, but generally, yeah, I get I get up early and go down to the basement. Come to the office. <laughs> I mean, I thought for a second, I thought, boy, his kids are hardcore if they're getting up at four thirty to start their day. Anyway, work ethic, like you oh, can't. Yeah, yeah, I got a, I got an eight year old and a five year old, so no, there's nothing, there's nothing hardcore. They're just, uh, they're, they're in the cute phase. <laughs> um, but so I, I was thinking about this. You know, I, I know that you, I know that Bridge Bio's in California, of course, and that you went to Stanford. Where, where did you grow up? Yeah, no, I, I actually I was born in Boston, but I don't remember anything of it because we moved to um, Rochester, Minnesota when I was about three weeks old, and I grew up there. So uh, Rochester, Minnesota, southeast Minnesota, it's where the Mayo Clinic is, 
and I spent most of my formative years there. How was that? I mean, I it's not often that I have someone from Minnesota on the show. <laughs> Certainly from uh, from Rochester, it yeah. was idyllic. You know, I mean, I I think it's interesting to reflect on it a little bit. It's um, it was a small town back then, probably less than sixty seventy thousand people. Um, lots of, uh, you know, diversity of thought, socioeconomic diversity, no, no racial diversity. I think we were the racial diversity uh, for the most part, but, uh, yeah. but it was a, it was a really, um, I think great community to grow up in. Um, I made a lot of good friends that I'm still close to, uh, there and, um, that was kind of simple living. <laughs> how, how is it? So you just said no racial diversity. How is it that your family was there in the, in the first place? The, they, I mean, my father's a physician researcher uh, in the area of nephrology, so um, the Mayo Clinic uh, was there, and I think it attracted him, and um, he's been there for, you know, over 30 years, really. That's the reason why the move from Boston. Yeah. That job. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay, so that so this that was leads into my next question. So your dad is a physician and, and a researcher? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he runs a lab. Yeah. So did that sort of... Um, lead you into thinking about a life in science or medicine? Yeah, I think in, you know, obviously you're, you're deeply affected by what you grow up around. And I grew up around a lot of examples of people working on basic science, trying to translate basic science into um, stuff that could be meaningful for people and help people with it. Um, so certainly that was a, that was an influence on me. I was never, um, you know, although there was reasonable pressure for me to become a, a doctor, I was never going to going to go down that route. I'm queasy and uh, probably didn't have the skills skill set for it. But uh, but yeah, but by and large, I, I I certainly must have been affected by growing up in a community where healthcare was such a big uh, big part of uh, everyone's uh, value system. I mean, you said that you could this the idea of translating research into medicine was your father also. As his, was his research also translational in that way, or just because he saw patients that he thought that way? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think probably one of the one of the you know um, differentiating features of doing research in a place like uh, the clinic, and, and there's there's many great examples of this across uh, uh, you know academe, is that you get to take what you're learning in the physician setting, sometimes you'll see an odd case, sometimes you'll see an interesting manifestation and get into the molecular pathophysiology of disease X or Y and then start doing research on it. So yeah, certainly he um, he, he connected the two and uh, did a lot of seminal work in, in phosphatonins and, and bone mineral density and um, 125 alpha hydroxy vitamin D, just a, just a bunch of stuff that, that also affected um, much of his practice too. Yeah. So you were surrounded by it growing up. Yeah, for sure. And, and what about siblings? Did you have siblings? Or do you yeah, have siblings? I have, a, yeah, yeah, I do. I have a, a younger sister, about two years younger. Is she in, in medicine at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's a smart one. She uh, She's a physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering, a oh. um, oncologist, and um, yeah, she's a badass. And what about, mm -hmm. and, and uh, your mother, was she also in the sciences at all or? or? Yeah, looks like well, my, mom, my mom was trained in uh, economics, actually, and uh, was uh, actually stayed at home with us for the most part when we were younger. And then I started working in development at the Mayo Clinic. So um, now she does a lot with the Mayo Clinic Foundation and, and helping to raise funds uh, for Mayo. So it's a big Mayo family. Oh, uh, yeah. In Rochester. Yeah. I mean, Rochester basically is like the Mayo Clinic. And, uh, they and used their to families. Be, yeah, yeah, there used to be an IBM plant there that was... Um, that was uh, of import, uh, but that sort of wound down over time. So I bet if you, I bet if you surveyed Rochester now, a, a good the, by far and away the largest employer has to be Mayo Clinic. Right, right. So as as you're growing up around this, you've got a mother who's sort of leans towards economists, maybe, and and your father is in medicine. Were your interests? I mean, did you think, okay, well, I'm going to go into medicine one way or another, or science, or did you have other interests? You know, when you're younger, maybe you thought, I don't know, sports, or I don't know. <laughs> Well, sports were off the table, just given my general athletic ability. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't remember really thinking that much about it. Uh, on the one hand, I think that there is always an expectation growing up in a, in a pretty hardcore household uh, that you're going to go on and do something uh, of, 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 uh, of importance or, or, some, or something that uses whatever skills you have to try to, to, to better society. And, um, 
but but you know whether it would be a doctor or a lawyer you know those are traditional like you know toolkits for uh for uh for a family like ours uh or an engineer i hadn't really thought about that growing up it was more just trying to trying to stick with what was interesting to me yeah so science was interesting to you Oh, certainly from from early days i was i was captivated by certain aspects of science chemistry and biology um you know it took, it took a long time for me to understand that i was not going to be the next linus pauling or, or something like that but uh but i was but i was captivated by physical chemistry and uh and those types of concepts from from actually a pretty young age i mean do you, do you remember why like why at what, what point it clicked <laughs> in that you thought oh this is fascinating to me i mean, I mean it's often it's you know that you understand the way the world works or the way that the body works or you know something like that that's a good question i don't think that um there's some people who have a who, who trying to understand the physical world around them the the tinkers that you know take apart a radio type person yeah. that, that was never me i guess i just really enjoyed logic systems like i mean that that would be my you know i wouldn't have turned to that growing up but just kind of kind of like a great book uh, you know a, a a cool system around chemistry or biology it seems so foreign it's like this is how a cell works but you're not interfacing with a cell on a day-to-day -day basis but it but it feels it's interesting you can get captivated by it it's like a story um and uh yeah i don't know Are the, those those like those self-conforming, interesting, logical systems um, were all something that captivated me. Yeah. But but not, the, not like deep, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like in the Westinghouse competition when I was in third grade or anything. I wasn't, I, you know, sort of makes it sound like I grew up in this, but, but that, you know, like this super academic, like it was, yes, my father was a, was an academic and, um, you know, great physician, but it wasn't, I think I wasn't, I wasn't geared into it like that, probably up until high school, right, where I really started to to, to get intense about um, about my love for science. But but before that, it was it was just you know the superior subject of uh, amongst many others that I enjoyed. But I wasn't I wasn't like doing chemistry kits on the side. I was yeah. watching TV. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I grew up in the Midwest, so I like you know watch TV. I've seen every you know. Who's the boss or whatever? Say by the it wasn't. It wasn't like this massively learned uh, upbringing. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're you're saying you had a typical mid Midwestern upbringing, but you happen yeah. to like. I mean, when you said the the thing about systems, which it sounds like maybe what was attractive was the ability to to put order to the world in a way yeah. that a cell and, works in this way. There's a system that operates inside the cell, and it does this. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually, um, you know, those goofy like MBTI tests that you can take your personality to, to yeah. test. Yeah. There's, I think the last one is J versus P, and I'm extraordinarily disorganized. I mean, you can see journals everywhere and, and, and books everywhere. I'm not an organized person, so you wouldn't think I would test J, uh, which is the more organized side of it. And I'm, just, you know, I'm sure some experts will tell me I'm wrong on this, but I thought that was all about organization. But I do think my in my in the way I think about things, I like to think about problems in a very structured way and almost like, get, yeah, it's just like dive into the logic tree. And when the logic tree all sort of works, it's it's amongst the happiest moments uh, <laughs> for, for me. That's why I loved engineering and um, just the general uh, approach of that type of thinking. So I think I've liked that since the get-go, just sort of a nice um, tidy little world that you can get into and it kind of makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> So that, I mean, that makes sense that you, so you went to, well, you said you sort of maybe really keyed in in high school. You thought, okay, now I know I want to go into science. Did you think already chemical engineering in that way? I mean, that was what you went to Stanford for. Yeah, no way. No. So I actually went to um, boarding school uh, for high school. And the whole reason I fell in love with chemistry was um, a person, and this is a recurring theme in my life. It was Tom Macabella. He was my high school chemistry teacher. He was uh, an amazing man. A totally amazing teacher, um, totally amazing individual educator, uh, really just a, a, a great uh, he hero to me in many ways. And I fell in love with his class. I fell in love with what he was teaching, and I, and I really like honed in on chemistry at that time. Could have gone anyway, which way? Could have gone, um, you know, toward biology. Could have gone honestly outside of science. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, other topics that 
um, you know, take the tools of science or logic and, and apply them in, in meaningful ways. So it just turned out that he was there. He was my teacher and um, had a huge effect on me. So I got, I got super deep into chemistry in, in high school. Did you know that you wanted to go to Stanford? Was the program the thing that drew you there? Or did you apply to, you know, lots of schools and Stanford was the, I don't know, top school or something? No, I didn't. No, I didn't know that I wanted to go to Stanford, I guess. Um, I had been thinking that I wanted to do chemistry and I, and I think Stanford had an early decision at that time. I didn't feel like applying to a thousand different colleges. So I just did Stanford early decision when I got in. I said, great, <laughs> let's go. Huh. I mean, I was interested in the West Coast. You know, I'm from the Midwest. So the East Coast where I'd gone to boarding school was interesting, but I thought maybe let's try something else. And oh, I, I see. Stanford obviously had a, a great, you know, I mean, it was an unbelievable place. So I, I, I lucked out and, uh, and, and went there. Where was, the, where was the boarding school? It was right outside of Boston. Ah, okay. So you went back to the Boston area, which you didn't remember, as you said, but yeah, you know, it must have yeah. seemed somewhat familiar, maybe based on family stories <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then it's down to yeah. it's down to California for college. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, you sort of rolled that, I think, into a, in a master's program. For yeah, they, yeah, they had this amazing program that they probably still do called the co-term program. I can't remember co-term or what, but uh, but you could do uh, five years and do your undergraduate and master's. And it just turns out that I had done a bunch of the work for the master's in over the course of the four years. So I had this extra year where I just got to take an unbelievable variety of classes. And I took, um, I was privileged to be working in another a great mentor to me, Steve Chu's lab at the time at Stanford. And I took a ton of biology classes during that year, biophysics classes. I took a human behavioral biology with Sapolsky, which was a mind-blowing class. Um, I, I, I got to take a lot of things that just weren't in the chemical engineering criteria and were sort of outside of uh, what I otherwise would have would have studied. Because then when I went back to the PhD after that, it was the same, you know, numerical methods, thermodynamics, uh, things of that nature that, that are more uh, traditional chemical engineering. But I benefited greatly from that from that extra year. It was uh, I, I got a, a broad smattering of of great classes, quantum chemistry, huh. um, with uh, with, uh, with Tester, I guess. Uh, anyway, I, yeah, I had a lot of great great professors and, and great courses. That, um, Did um. I mean, did Steve Chu teach you anything that you remember that you're like, okay, that is, you know, he's quite well known. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, I mean, he was unbelievable. I mean, there a couple of things that that struck me from his lab. Number one was um, at that time he was doing single molecule fret, and he had just this unbelievable squad of um, postdocs and graduate students, uh, Chuck Schroeder, Zhao Weijang, who I had the privilege of working with. She's a professor at Harvard now, T.J. Ha, who went to University of Illinois. And um, j j just the rhythm with which they approached every problem that they were trying to solve, I mean, down to the down to the to, to the level of, of of trying to model why quenching, for instance, occurs uh, in the context of of, of trying to understand um, single molecule uh, vesicle fusion. It just it was just very so he dr he drilled super deep. He was he was really uh, you know a genius as far as I can tell. Um, secondly, just the work ethic in his lab was, was yeah. like really, it was great. You just go there on Saturdays, you go there on Sundays, people were there, it was buzzing. I mean, that type of, um, it, you know, that, that excitement, I mean, some people say, oh man, like, you know, that that's not a great balance, but it is a great balance when you're just totally in love with this stuff. And he was totally in love with this stuff. You would be there on Saturday. He'd already be there. With the with the music going on in his office and reading a book and and you know you have like another Nobel laureate in there like Kornberg or something like that and they'd be talking about us just he's just so it just he just so much excitement for the science and then you know I remember one time I was talking to him it was maybe like a Saturday or something like that again and I was reading something about. I think it was like Godel's incompleteness theorem, something totally philosophical. It was, uh, you know, was like, does this, does this, does the whole logic system that we've put forth within the realm of, of math and science make sense here? And 
I mean, he just sat down and talked to me about it and how complex number theory might be addressing some of those issues for like an hour. I mean, he was he was a real he is a real. I haven't spoken to him in many years, but he is he's a really remarkable thinker. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that thought that uh, you know, people say, well, good God, they're in the lab on Saturdays and Sundays, but it isn't a grind if that's the thing you're most excited to do that day. It's where yeah. you want to be. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about him was he, he could get into, the, I mean, as, as far as I, again, I, I was no expert. Uh, I was just some, you know, bumbling around undergrad. So first of all, it was a real gift that he even let me in, but, um, but he would get into experimental details and he'd be able to step back and educate and explain even the most basic principles. Uh, you know, that's consistent with the fact that he is, he's really just so gifted, but um, a really remarkable man. Yeah. I yeah. Privileged to, to, spend some time in his lab. Yeah. So it, it seems like at this point you were, you're maybe considering a life in academia. I mean, you went to get your PhD after oh, this. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was I your plan. That was definitely my plan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, um, I, you know, academia was, was the thing for me. I, I had, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't do any jobs in industry period up and in through, I was done with my PhD. Um, and that was very much my plan was to try to, you know, I think, I think I probably went to Stanford hoping that I would become again, some sort of a great physical chemist uh, or, or, or hardcore basic um, chemistry researcher, but it became pretty apparent toward the end of my tenure there that I wasn't at that level. I wasn't, I wasn't ever going to make a contribution at, at that, you know, as Stephen Chu-like level, uh, which, you know, that, that, that is, uh, that makes sense. And, uh, and so then I was like, well, but I still want to be an academic. I still want, I said, there's maybe something to contribute. Um, and at that time I was really interested in the intersection of biology and, you know, more quantitative engineering principles and MIT had a really, really cool set of professors exploring that intersection. And especially, uh, you know, one of my, one of my heroes in, in research, who I had, again, had been the privilege to do my PhD with Doug Offenberger, along with Dane Whitrip and a few others, um, they were kind of pioneering this, uh, biological engineering division at MIT. So I was um, lucky to get over there and work with them. And uh, it was, it was, you know, it was an amazing experience. That, that concept you just mentioned, I've heard other people on their show talk about this, where they, they go to school, they go to college, even for undergrad, and they think that they are going to be, um, I don't know, the world's greatest mathematician. And then they come across somebody who actually is the world's greatest mathematician. And they go, <laughs> oh, I, I'm actually good at this, but I'm not at that level. And maybe yeah. I need to focus on something else. But so did that, when you got to MIT, did that, that idea solidify that you were good as an academic, but you no, maybe no, weren't? That, uh, yeah, no, I, I already had that in college. I mean, that was, that was, you know, I wouldn't say college was a very, I think I had a great time in college, but that was a tough, there were a tough set of, I can't remember, some trimesters or whatever, where you're just coming to grips with that. And it sounds just ridiculously arrogant to even suspect that you might have that ability, but every, you know, every child dreams or whatever. And exactly. Every kid who's, who's been rolling along, uh, uh, you sort of, you know, when you're kind of like a plumpy Indian kid like I was, you 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 derive a lot of your, of your self-confidence. Uh, from being super good at a thing, and for me that was chemistry and, and uh, et cetera. And then when you realize, damn, I'm not even close to these kids, and there's no way you could work your way out of that hole or anything. You just gifted. <laughs> uh, I think that that's tough. I'm glad I went through it so early in my life. Um, and then I, and then by the time I got to MIT, I wasn't even concerned about it. And by the time I got to MIT, I, it was more how do I work on a problem that I can make a difference in. And wasn't so worried about the fact that there were likely to be, you know, many people in my program who uh, were were much more gifted than I was, and there certainly were. Yeah. <laughs> so it was great. Actually, I mean, you know, once you once you once you gain comfort with that, um, sky's the limit because you just like put yourself into milieus where you're just learning constantly from people. And that's what I, I mean, you know, just one of the ideas that we have here at Bridge is like a swarm of just super smart people. Yeah. And everyone kind of has a humility. It's not a superstar organization in the sense that I think we have a lot of superstars, but there's no one person who we hew around. It's like, this is the person that made us, you know, great or whatever. It's just a bunch yeah. of really smart people and you're learning from them. And everyone has the humility to understand that no one knows everything. 
And that's kind of why I also like drug discovery and development too, is that it is sort of like the ultimate team sport. So anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. you know, that was, that was kind of a, it was an interesting time, but yeah, by the time I got to MIT, I was, I was, I was fine with my mediocrity. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, I, I don't think that's fair to say. You, you just had to readjust where you're going to aim yourself. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, whatever it is, everyone, I mean, I don't know if everyone goes through it, but when you, when, yeah, I mean, I don't belabor the point, but, but after you've gone through it, it's a, it's a healthy thing. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. And in, so I went to, a, I was in a tiny high school and I just was great at physics and math and I got to college yeah. and I thought, oh, there are people who are way better at physics and math than I am here for sure. Right. Yeah. And then you just realize, well, you have to really find out what the thing you actually are quite good at. And uh, yeah. anyway, so you, you finished the effect. How did it affect you though? Um, I just, I decided I was not going to be a math major. Yeah. I mean, I realized that, that there people were, I, I mean, I could do math, but I was never going to come up with theories. Yeah. And I, do you remember the moment that you decided that like, you were like, well, this is, I'm not going to do this. This is uh, not going to. Well, there, there, there were two things. Um, yeah. one was I, my first test ever in college. So I, in high school, I had just gotten A's all the time by really kind of just cramming the night before and going in and acing the test kind of thing. Yeah. And I did that for my first test in college and I got a D on it and it was something like art history. I mean, it wasn't like, um, yeah. I just didn't, and I, I, I couldn't believe that I'd done so poorly. And I went in to see the professor and I said, listen, I studied like five hours last night. And he said, five hours, y you know, you have to study an hour for every hour of class. You should have studied 15 hours over the previous two weeks for this test. And I thought, oh, I need to, I need to really up my game here. And I, yeah. I did of course, but it was, so it, as you said, it was like informative and useful. Yeah. But there's that moment I was like, oh, I'm, this is a different place than where I was. And those old rules yeah. don't apply and you have to do something different here. So, yeah. Um, but so when, when you finish the PhD, then the idea of an academic life is already behind you. No, what happened during my PhD, no, I love, I mean, the PhD uh, in many ways reinforced my love for, for academia. I was, I was working in a, in a field that was um, somewhat novel at the time, systems biology, some of the modeling techniques that, uh, that, that, uh, Doug Lothenberger, who I, who I uh, worked with and pioneered, uh, and others were just coming coming to the fore in in, in the major scientific um, literature. But I, I, you know, MIT is a, quite an entrepreneurial place, and that, those were sort of go-go times. Uh, I was there between 2002 and 2006. Yeah. So, um, so we, so, so I got bit by that entrepreneurial bug, and we raised a little bit of money against an idea. Um, wasn't a particularly good idea, uh, but but it was for a, a low cost gene chip, and ultimately, you know, fitted the money away. Uh, did, didn't didn't really uh, turn the to turn the idea into anything of value. That was the first time I was kind of like, huh. There's a big gap between um, the skill set that I understood and application in the real world. And I think for me, because it was clear that I wasn't going to make a seminal difference in academe in the sense that I was going to discover, uh, you know, uh, the structure of a new scientific revolution. I had already put that to bed. Um, the, 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 the hope was that my work would generate things that would help society in some small way. And, and, and seeing the gap of like, okay, here's an interesting idea. It was one of the best ideas that I'd seen at MIT. And then like how difficult it was still to translate that into something that mattered for people. I figured I should learn more about, um, how that translation occurs. So that took me into business. It kind of like, I mean, it, it was kind of a, uh, like when I look back on my life, it was like academia, 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 and then all of a sudden, boom, you're going into business after after PhD, right. especially having studied with with Doug, who who I think is well known for having placed a lot of great, um, a great, great uh, professors in academia. But so, so, so I guess from a narrative basis, it seems more severe than it actually was in my head, which was kind of this gradual evolution of being like, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be the, the, the last award-winning, you know, whatever it is. And then, okay, I'm not, you know, I'm sort of at this intersection of application and uh, theory, but I'm in the lab and now, okay, I just discovered I'm not, you know, that there's some failings for, for me there too. So let me go and, and try to work on that in another context that where I could learn a bit more about business. So it felt more gradual in my head, but it, it seems, seems more severe when I look back on it. Again. Yeah. But so the, the, you went to McKinsey, right? I think. Yeah. 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 So was that part of that thinking, okay, well, listen, I mean, it's harder to start a company than I thought it was. Maybe McKinsey is going to teach me. I'm going to learn stuff there, how to, how to actually run businesses, how to make them I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's funny is 
I, I, I thought that going in. I mean, I don't think McKinsey is the place to go to learn how to run a startup for sure. Uh, those those things are, are, are <laughs> very, very different. But what McKinsey did teach me was a lot about how the broader business environment works, meaning how does the healthcare ecosystem work? And even to this day, I think, uh, you know, when I look around, I sort of understand how, uh, you know, the payer system works and how an LDN is designed and what a distributor's business model is and um, how, how to think about all of that, which is important in terms of your product's going to live somewhere in a, in a broader healthcare system where it's, where it's being valued. And, and, uh, and so that, that was, that was a valuable learning. It probably, it wasn't like, how do I run my next startup? It was more, how does healthcare broadly work? And what um, problems could be productively solved by biotech or, or pharma within that space? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box, and if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Oh, I see. And so, but how, how long were you at McKinsey? I was there three and a half years. Yeah, oh, almost oh, good, years. good amount of time, yeah. 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 What's the thing that, that brought you out of it? Well, um, my, I met my wife in um, in New York. We were both, I was in the New Jersey office at the time, uh, but living in Manhattan and she was uh, in New York. Actually, I, I first met her in high school. Uh, oh, really? It, but it, yeah, but it took her a while to come around, I guess, like 15 years or something. <laughs> did you, did you, how did you, did you look her up in New York? How did you, were you still in touch? <laughs> yeah, no, we met through a mutual friend uh, or we met uh, and uh Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh, it was lucky for me, and uh, and then she decided to move to the West Coast uh, to come uh, and work at Apple, and so uh, for a while I was sort of commuting back and forth, and then I said, "This is like anything is you know small change in your life. It, it makes you pick your head up and say, well, this was just supposed to be an educational moment for me. Now what you know where do I want to where do I want to take some of what I learned in graduate school and some of what I learned." business and, and how do I apply it and uh, the opportunity to work for for Charles Holmesy at, at Third Rock came along and uh, I, I I I snapped at it so oh, that's what happened I jumped at, I jumped at it <laughs> whatever <laughs> so that was so Third Rock came after that they, they reached out to you somehow and said here's a man with a PhD I, and and uh, no I, I had known um I knew a couple people who were working there. I know Chris Varma, who was working on the on the East Coast, uh, and somehow I'd gotten to to, to know him over time, and and uh, so I met a few of the partners in Boston, and then um, a friend of mine, Jake Bauer, um, who ended up being uh, well, he was he was at Third Rock for a long time, and and then uh, was the chief business officer of Myocardia. He was on the West Coast, and he was leaving to go help run a company. So he said, "Look, there's an opening here." Uh, why don't you, you know, why don't you get in touch with with some of the folks? And and I did, and and um, it just 
became a parent and I've been very lucky to, to work with that squad. So, so yeah, that's what happened. Okay. And, th but I think there's one more step in there. I think you, did you work at myocardia too for a while? Well, I worked at, well, so third rocks model is that you, it's not really like an investment shop. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, you know, it is a VC, but uh, in as much as it sets its own companies up, you tend to jump in uh, for yeah. a little while and then come out. So I was at third rock, Charles and I put together myocardia. That's what I thought. I jumped in, helped operate it for a little while. So did Charles. Charles was the CEO. Uh, until the permanent management team came on. And then I jumped back into Third Rock. That's what I, I thought. Okay. Rock. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I figured that you got to my card, myocardia from Third Rock and then came back out. So 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 then you're yeah. you're in Third Rock and and uh I'm I'm assuming that this concept for Bridge Bio somehow came out of your work at Third Rock. Half it half did, yeah. So I mean I joined Third Rock because uh and this is where it all starts to I guess come together in my in my head at least which is the love for logical systems some training in you know in engineering at the interface of, of quantitative sciences and, and biology and then some understanding of business to me the place where it was most aptly applied was this area of genetic disease and what i mean by that is ge genetic disease is kind of the logic tree of diseases <laughs> where you can connect dots from yeah. genetic aberrants to protein driver to molecular pathophysiology symptoms and you can start to draw blueprints in and around how one might target the disease at its source and that's what charles was working on when i joined he was working on sickle and then we sort of asked where else could we go with that concept targeting well-described diseases at their source and that to me became just the, the big passion was um, that's what led to, 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 to myocardia and that's what led to a whole lot of other ideas that we had. And so half the half of what became Bridge Bio was really this concept of there's a lot of great ideas in this space and we just want to do it at scale. Um, certainly uh, that was that. And then the other half was reading Andrew Lowe's paper in Nature Biotech about the concept of financing something at scale. Megafund. And how, the megafund, yeah, exactly. That um, that was a really interesting uh, moment. Uh, and, uh, and and I thought, okay, if we can put those two things together, you can actually build something that could hopefully be really pragmatic and at scale help a bunch of patients in these uh, you know, areas of genetic medicine. So um, that, that, that's how it all came together. This is So this is fascinating to me because I mean, uh, when I was looking at Bridge Bio, there's like three big areas that I think are really, really interesting to talk about. And so the the first one is, is you have on your board Charles Homsey's on the board, right? Yeah. And so's yep. Andrew Lowe. Yep. So he must have been brought in. You must have helped set up the business plan with his thinking about at scale. Totally. Yep. And maybe maybe we should talk a little bit about just the mega fund idea that he sort of put out there, which was kind of, you know, drug development is super expensive. Everybody knows that cancer is proving incredibly hard to crack. And the more we yep. find out about it, the more difficult it becomes almost. And his idea was, we can't throw $200 million at cancer. Let's throw $30 billion at cancer. <laughs> right. And you'll have as much money as you'll ever need, but you'll spread the risk around all these assets so that the fund won't really be in danger if something fails, if something fails. And eventually out of it, the money will probably be you know, depleted in the end, but you will have three or four new cancer drugs that might be really, really life-changing. And yep. it was a super interesting thing. And uh, it has sort of shifted a little bit, I think, the thinking around funding, P possibly a little bit already. Do, do you agree with that? Totally. I mean, I think it's just starting to shift it because there were a lot of companies, um, and we're not the only one, that were born of the idea, but we never quite, like, I mean, that's why I say Bridge Bio is just getting started today. We're finally today starting to get an approach to scale that we talked about when we started the company and to take advantage of some of the concepts that Andrew had put forth. And the whole, the core concept, which you nicely described is that you're living in a jackpot industry and meaning, you know, the expected return is positive. The modal return is negative and you've got a really wacky way of financing it. You just, you know, you've got people who think they can make the right call. Yeah, right. and, and, you know, they're, they're smart people. I mean, I have the privilege of working with a lot of smart people, but they're generally going to be more wrong than they are right, just because this is an incredibly hard set of problems to solve. So in most industries like that, you finance a big basket, understanding what the historical probability of technical success or commercial success or, or whatever it is. And in doing so, you can basically hive off default risk. 
so that you can bring a lot more capital into the space. And that was, that was kind of the, that, that's the underappreciated, I think, aha moment, which is there's $170 trillion of capital in the world. There's another seven trillion, I don't know what it is, Andrew, Andrew does number. There's $40 trillion of capital in the equity markets itself. So when people say, wow, biotech has a $1.6 trillion or $1.8 trillion market cap right now in aggregate, like who cares? It's a small, it's, you know, it's tantamount to, to what it's producing in the GDP. So the, the, the ability of biotech to help more and more people with more and more financing if they just had the right profile, which is you're not going to lose your money and you might make some money here. If you can create that type of profile, you could bring debt investors in who account for much larger of the portion of the economy than do you know equity investors don't want to take binary risk and stuff like that. And in doing so, you can let the science go. You can let the science speak for itself and not and not you know what's sexy or like what the narrative is or or anything like that. And that's what I thought the glory of, of what Andrew was positing was. And I think um, you know like our last financing was all you know basically equity linked debt. And I think we're getting closer and closer to this concept of now with a diversified pipeline. I don't have to necessarily pitch one product. I can pitch the shape of the portfolio to some people, and then they get excited about it. That's it. So I. Um... When I was looking at, so like, what is the proposition for Bridge Bio? And let me put forth what I think it is, right? Having looked yeah. at it, it's it's the idea that, that there are companies that are put together around like a really interesting piece of biology. We came up, we came across this in the lab. We spun out of university, and we think this is great. Or even here's a disease that we think we can we can attack. We're going to go after Angelman's syndrome or something. Yeah. And that's another way. What what Bridge Bio has put together is, and I think I think even maybe the company has put this idea out that it's a kind of a money ball idea where the company is going to go find what's considered a money ball for anyone listening is the book by Michael Lewis about the Oakland athletics, where they would find baseball players who are undervalued, but quite, quite good. And together they put together a team that was spent less than anyone else and was a good team. So the idea is that you're going to find these assets that are somewhat undervalued. They're either languishing in academia. Maybe they're, they've been shelved at um, pharma because there wasn't resources for it, apply value to them. And then eventually hopefully get the real value, which is the thing is approved and there for patients. So when you look at that as a concept of getting these assets in that are undervalued by using the scale that you mentioned, the resources that you have, applying value to them, the company is actually a financial proposition and not a scientific one. Am I, am I correct in that? Well, I don't. So I don't think we advance that that Moneyball thing. Although I'm, you know, it's a, it's an interesting headline, and I did love the book. But but I'll tell you, I'll tell you where it's analogous, and I'll tell you where it's different. I think that the, the purpose of our company is is super simple. It is to create and to maximize the number of new meaningful medicines for patients with genetic disease that otherwise would not have been created. Yeah, it's that simple. And almost everything that we worked on early days, everything you see late in our pipeline, is effectively ideas that were sitting on the shelf, mechanism of disease ideas, often with like an early hook onto how you might target the disease at its source that were somewhere in some academic's laboratory. And we said, how do we translate that insight into a medicine that matters? So that translation, that early work, reading those journals, all that stuff, that is, that is part and parcel of what animates us because that's how you get to the meaningful impact on, on patients. So in that sense, the company is a science company through and through. I mean, you know, we, we are, we are let your science speak. This is hopefully rigorous science. This is no bullshit science, just like Moneyball. You know, I don't know that much about Moneyballs uh, or much about baseball, but they were like, it was a love of baseball. It was just right. like not a bullshit love of baseball. It wasn't a, Hey, you know, this guy went to the, you know, like it was actually looking at the facts, whatever those facts were, sabermetrics in their case. For us, it's just forget whether the person is decorated in this way or whether they are, are at this school or whether they or whether they, these two science papers came out or this other thing. Got the, let's just get down to the, the bones of what we understand about this disease and whether or not we have an ability to make an impact. And sometimes that's going to be in small markets, which we can make profitable given our structure. And sometimes it's going to be in larger markets. Okay. So, so that, so that being said, I think where it's analogous to Moneyball maybe, or where it's, where it's analogous to a financial proposition is that there is no limit. I think uh, a priori to what the company could do in terms of innovation that could help patients. Meaning, I'm not saying that I'm just an SIRNA company, nor am I saying I'm just right. a, 
Angel Man's or CNS inherited disease. I'm saying everything within the span of genetic disease, and genetic disease really is a moniker for higher probability technical success because right. I can I can draw that engineering blueprint. So maybe it's not just genetic disease. Maybe in the future there are proteomic platforms where you know the protein variants you know adequately quantitatively describes the symptom you know the symptoms or the symptomatic output and i say okay i'm going to go after that because i understand that is a target it's really to say what are the high probability technical success diseases where no one else is working because if someone else is working everywhere then i'm fine with our company just saying great like job done you know but that's not happening certainly most of what we go after because we go after it so early and we're so kind of you know hand in hand with a program three, four, five years before it gets to the clinic. No one's working that early, so yeah. that, that that's kind of that that's that's how I see the company, and that's what, that's why I think you know when you say it's a financial proposition, I, I don't I don't think of it that way, but I think it's a it's a proposition that has no natural boundaries to how much we could take on. Could we take on another double the pipeline, maybe for successful? Yeah. So I. So first off, Neil, I don't mean to imply it's not a scientific company at all. What, what I mean no, no, is. No, I, no, I, is I'm sorry. I'm sorry. no, no. I, I think I, I asked it wrong. I think I, that because I have, I have, uh, because I am defensive about that. But, but, but I do think that you are right in saying there's something interesting about the scale that that yes. we're trying to go for. Yeah. And that's what makes it different. It's not a traditional biotech in the sense that it's not the biotech narrative that you generally hear. Like we're one hundred percent. Yeah, this disease or this modality. Right, and then this the other thing, and 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 when I say it's a financial proposition, I'm saying when you go to investors and they're excited, it's, well, investors are there for the financial proposition, and without the money, the, the companies don't exist. We we all know that. Okay. So when you go to these investors and say, look, we're going after monogenic diseases. We are going after diseases where the gene has been identified, and we know there's a direct causal link between the gene and the disease. That de-risks the program for the investors. The risks are twofold. One is, is this the right target and is it druggable? You're saying we know the target. So now our risk yeah. is, is it druggable? And that yeah. I think also is appealing for investors. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, broadly, you think about what we're all, how, how do drug programs fail? There's, you know, target risk, like you nail the target, but it turns out not to be important in the in the overall pathophysiology of the disease. There's tox risk, asymptomatic yeah. tox, can have, there's manufacturing risk. And then there's obviously competitive or strategic risk. I mean, all we're doing is we're taking away the target risk because the target almost through a series of human clinical experiments has been validated. Now, yeah. that doesn't mean I can definitely drug it at the right time in a patient's uh, life or, um, you know, but, but or, or, or I'll trial it at the right duration or I can even tease out the right functional endpoint. But it does dramatically decrease the target risk when you've got this map of you know, what we call genotype, phenotype. Yeah. So this, uh, the other thing that I thought about was, um, you know, as you said, this typical biotech narrative is, hey, we're super small. We've got this great piece of biology, whatever, going after this asset, and we're going to be fast, and we're going to be nimble, and that's how we separate ourselves from pharma. And that's the joy of biotech, and that is why biotech is more innovative than pharma is. But you guys just bought uh, IDOS. Yeah, you, you brought that in house. It has a phase three asset. It's TTR. the The target is TTR. Um, it, it's could have a great value. I think the total value of that company was a, like a billion dollars. And when you look at that, you go, "Well, that sounds like something that a pharma company might do." Well, uh, and, but, okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, One other thing is so. And then secondly, you guys are going to market your own drugs, which is the smartest thing yeah. you can do for your revenue stream for sure. Yeah, but that is something that pharma typically does better than biotech. And so then the question becomes: Are there pro like are there hurdles in Bridge Bio's future that might make it less nimble and fast, like a biotech wants to be, because of scale, because of marketing? I don't know. Oh yeah, for sure. So I'll uh, I'm going to show you a book in a second, but like, but so so many good questions uh, in in that. Number one, let me just actually reject your hypothesis for a moment that yeah. biotech biotech does have a higher ROI and higher probability of technical success when it comes to drug discovery. Is that because it's extraordinarily nimble? I don't think so. I, I would say Bridge Bio is much nimbler at the program level than your average biotech. And I'll tell you what, your average biotech is not a startup. 
it's in just it's just a new company. It's just you know some VC puts a hundred million dollars into it and hires a bunch of people from pharma and they come in. They build this massive bureaucracy even before they have a development candidate. And it's like a it's like a mini pharmaceutical company. The reason it does better generally is that they've thought carefully about an area of biology. Sometimes they've brought great academic founders in who are super incented to just get that thing right. Right. So that's that's why biotech works in my mind. Is like I that, see. That, Hardcore, that, that hardcore alignment of incentives and, and focus. So what we have is we have that at each one of our program levels, but we got to hooked up to a central proxy, if you will, that makes it even faster and even nimbler. When it definitely really doesn't work, we shut it down. When something is working, we can accelerate it a lot more quickly. But all of the incentives, all of the you know the hardcore doing is decentralized in our in our model. It's not me saying. You know, okay, guys. Like, you know, what, what, like, what? How, how are you going to go, go about this uh, TSP one non-human primate study? So, so scientists actually know that disease and have been working on it for 20 years that are driving that. So it's like a collection of, of, of biotech activity inside of a, of a broader ecosystem. Now, you asked a good question. As we scale, now you scale that decentralized, decentralized model on the R&D side. I don't think you get less nimble. In fact, you get more nimble. So that was the book I was going to show you. Is um, is by uh, it's by uh, Je- Jeffrey West called uh-huh. Scale. Have you ever seen this? Uh, anyway, he's the president of the Santa Fe Institute. And he talks about why companies, by and large, as they scale, go away and and don't achieve super linear growth, but they achieve sublinear growth. And the reason for it is that they tend not to hew to a decentralized model where you have different pods of activity and then those pods grow into other pods of activity. Rather, they become more and more centralized, taking advantage not of returns to scale, but economies of scale, savings. And that inherently limits the growth of the system because you've got the centralized command and control uh, type thing. And and I think it's appropriate for some things. Certainly you see that in big pharma, but that's not what we're doing. We've got this massively decentralized organization I think where 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 the rubber will meet the road though is commercial, where we are marketing stuff, and then you ask yourself, well, is that going to make us more or less nimble? The assertion, well, we have to prove it, is going to make us more nimble because what does revenue do? Revenue allows you to do more and more research and be less and less open to the vagaries of the capital markets to do it. I mean, yeah, you know, if you have a real product, real products tend to, in bad times and good times, trade at some multiple of their revenue. Therefore, you have the ability to continue to take, and they tend to be profitable, so you can take that, you know, cash flow and plow it into new ideas that, that hopefully generate value for for patients um, at scale. So that that's kind of the vision. I mean, you know, a few people have done it. Regeneron, yeah. blah blah blah. There's there's not a whole lot of, of companies that make the transition, but we're gonna give it a shot. I think I think what your answer is is um, we've already thought about this, Brady. That's your answer. No, no, no. Yeah, it's no, true. But, but I mean, it is sort of what animates the whole the whole model is part of it was how do we bring a new type of investor in? Part of it is how do you build a new type of biotech that to me feels like a like a true startup, like where you've got small teams that are really incented to just get their thing right, but you've got collections of them under an umbrella and everyone's innovating at the same time and you're going back to Steve Chu, like your labs are packed on Saturday and Sunday and like staff meetings are happening at all hours of the day because people are so excited by what's going on. And I just did not see that in biotech as much as I saw it in in other sectors of the economy because it tended to be for a wide variety of good reasons, a very, very experienced game where people were literally like retiring into biotech or retiring into the startup world. And that's not the vibe here. So this sets uh, this sets up perfectly. This last question I, I want to ask you about this. Uh, you know, the reason why biotech exists is venture capitalists had been happy to sink money into companies that made widgets or pants or cars, but but what happened is is they realized that you could actually put money into an experiment, which what biotech is a grand experiment, and sometimes those experiments pay out. And that became a model that worked, and that is what gave rise to this industry. It's the thing that separates the American biotech industry from the rest of the world, frankly, is all this VC capital that's available for it. So that was an evolution in financing. And it's equally as important to what happened to this industry as all the great science that came out, you know, the first antibody um, research, et cetera. So my question is, when you look at something like Bridge Bio or Centessa, we just saw that spun out yeah. of Medici, right? So Medici mm-hmm. spun out this 
conglomerate called yeah. Centessa, which is 10 biotechs put together and they seeded it with $250 million. Yeah. And I, the question is, is this another evolution of the financing model for biotech? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, you know, the, like the, 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 I know people fret about it, but um, I think the more capital, the better in this space. There's so much to do for patients and there's so many good ideas. You know, the, the traditional venture capitalists might say, and I've heard this before, oh, there's too much capital in the space, or, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of bad ideas being funded. There's a lot of great ideas still sitting on the shelf. Um, you know, there's tens of thousands of, of patents and NIH grants occurring every year, and we're founding like 150 new companies a year, 200 new companies a year. So the opportunity is massive, and the hope is these new models, by bringing in new types of investors, um, will continue to broaden the scope with which we can play with science to see if we can help patients. And I think that that's like, you know, what's, what's better than that? Yeah. I mean, do, do people say, what's the fear when, when people say there's too much money in this sector right now? I think, I mean, to be honest, I think the fear is greed because right now when people are worried about the money, the money is like, is like glomming on to the same companies. So what I just said, like, if you look at the number of new companies that get founded every year, it's almost flat. It's flat line from 2007 all the way to today. Maybe it's slightly higher, but it's not that much more than a couple hundred. So all that's happening is you get massive rises in valuation. And who are, who are most of the people that are putting that money to work? They're like venture capitalists who have a relatively, you know, three to five year time horizon. They need to get in and they need to get out at a higher value. So I think the worry for them is that by the time they're getting in, the valuations are so high that, um, you know, potentially they're not going to make as much money as they used to. But that's the wrong objective. Well, that's the right objective function for them. It's the wrong objective function for the industry. The industry's objective function is how many meaningful medicines are we going to make? Right. And and the more and the more and how many meaningful medicines we're going to make, and can we make those profitably on a base zero? Right. I mean, so 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 one way to consider it is like the valuation that I just described, whatever it is, one point. Let's just call biotech one point six, one point eight trillion dollars of market cap or whatever. That uh -huh. implies that you probably need something like, um, you know, if if the revenue multiple is five times, you need like forty billion dollars of new products a year to to to, to meet that implied valuation and maybe we're at you know if we were at 60 approvals last year or so and the peak year sales on that is like 400 whatever we're at 224 billion we're, we're off so someone's going to lose somewhere some of these biotechs that are here at this value are going to go down and some are going to go up and, that, and that's fine and that's fair and some people fret about those ever increasing valuations but what i fret about is how do we get more and more money into the early stage space because regardless of what valuation or pre-money is at there are great ideas that could help patients that are literally sitting on shelves today and should be pushed forward and could make someone some money in the right context i mean you just said 60 approvals right yeah i think it was i mean that. Yeah, yeah roughly that's remarkable it's awesome yeah i yeah. totally agree yeah, I mean, so it's like I, I always kind of thought the idea was, well, if there's so much money coming into the sector, um, what's going to happen is a bunch of people are going to lose their shirts and then it's all going to pull back and there's not going to be any money left. And that's the fear. But I, I just don't know that that's um, yeah, I don't know that's going to happen. I mean, yeah, I, I you know, it's it's it's. Um, there are certain people that will obviously, you know, not live up to the to the hype and, and there'll be others that, that create great medicines. But I think by and large, we're in a very productive time in our industry, you know, what, what, what was called E-Rooms Law has reversed in as much as productivity uh, or number of NMEs per dollar spent is, is going up for the first time in a long time. And that's in part because we're doing better with targets and in part because we're subfractionating syndromes into real diseases that we can go after. And I think that, um, yeah, the time feels like now to, 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 to really do this work productively. So I, I agree with you. I, you know, a lot of people fretted about the tech industry, whatever it was, 10, 12 years ago, and certainly there was a bubble, yeah. but there was more of a secular trend toward uh, value creation there. Even though if you like DCF that whole industry, I guess, like, you know, and a lot of it is like just makes money on advertising, you know, the implied advertising market would be like twice the, the global product market. <laughs> if you're like $2 spent for every $1 product makes no sense. But the, the thought is there are going to be other ways to monetize those platforms. And my thought is there's going to be a lot of ways to help patients. And so yeah. we're just we're just scratching the tip of it. So um, to, to bring this back to you, so this 
after having heard about your background, this makes perfect sense to me, right? That your mother was sort of more into economics and finance. Your dad was a researcher. No wonder that you were so interested in the mega fund idea. And Andrew Lowe's an, an economist. And you've taken those sort of economist ideas, which is, in my opinion, sort of like economists are really good at calmly looking at the data, right? They're super good at that. And I, that makes sense that Bridge Bio looks the way that it does. Do you agree? Like, I think it, it's a perfect reflection of the way maybe you think about maybe the world. Well, maybe, but 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 dramatically informed by um, some just wonderful mentors that I get to work with, like uh, yeah. like Andrew and Charles and Richard and Frank and all these guys. Yeah, but yeah, no, I think it's a, I think it's a, it it, it like any startup, I I hope is is kind of a a reflection of what I find dear and interesting intellectually, and and also just kind of the the environment or the or the culture that I would want to have worked in. Yeah. <laughs> Like it goes back to like working in Steve Chu's lab or, or working in Rothenberger's lab or that excitement is what I feel when I come to work. And so that's, it's why I love it. That's why I think we're just getting started. And I think hopefully the members of Bridge Bio feel that way too. It's, it's, it's that, yeah, it's just, it's that academic excitement. It's fun. Uh, just one, one final thing, you know, you said before that when you're at Third Rock, you sort of create a company, they go in for a while, and then they might come back out. But this sounds like, you know, this, this is not a one asset company. This is a big company. Now you've got 250 employees, I think, or more. Yeah, no, I think we got, we have 32 programs and we oh have my God. Um, yeah, 400 employees or so. You could run this company for the next 20 years of your, if your life, if you wanted to, is that kind of the goal? <laughs> the board let me, yeah. Yeah, yeah if sure. they let you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would, I would, I mean, I'm having a blast and I think that there's a lot to do. Uh, and like I said, as long as the objective function remains um, one where there's latent opportunity, meaning there's meaningful medicines that aren't being created that we could step in and help create, then I'd love to do this and, you know, until 70s or 80s. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the chances that I get to do that are, are, are you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know how long the, uh, how, how, how long I could go before I make a, a monster mistake, but yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> well, okay. Um, listen, I really appreciate this. This is an invigorating talk. I uh, I loved it. Thank you. No, thank you, Brady. I appreciate it. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to stop this. All right. There it is. Your first Rounders podcast with Neil Kumar. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I would like to say thanks to Neil for making the time to do this. Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. I will take some information, um, some more information on Bridge Bio, the Mega Fund article by Andrew Lowe, and the book that Neil mentioned. I will put all that in our community page, which you can find off the homepage of Nature Biotech. If you'd like to talk about this podcast, our journal, or anything that we do, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. You're listening to this or uh, I'm releasing this on March 1st. Spring is in the air. Vaccinations are happening. My father has been vaccinated. My stepmother has been vaccinated. My mother-in-law has been vaccinated. My teacher friends have been vaccinated. I have a dentist friend. He's been vaccinated. So it's happening. It's happening. Better times ahead. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you on the next one. And goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.